You're listening to Unlikable Female Characters, the podcast featuring feminist thriller writers in conversation about women who don't give a damn if you like them. I am Kristen LaPianca, and I'm here with Lane Fargo. Hello. And Wendy Hurd. Hello. And by the time this episode airs, it's going to be the day after Christmas. And so let's talk about New Year's Eve. Lane, what are you planning on New Year's Eve? I don't really have any plans. Usually we stay inside and hide from all the drunk people on the train. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really the only way to do it, in my opinion. Like, there's so much pressure to, like, have the best night ever on New Year's Eve. And, like, it's total bullshit. Like, it's crowded and it's winter, so it's cold. And yep. people are drunk and things are expensive and, like, Ubers are impossible. And it's just, like, I don't know why anyone would really bother. <laughs> I think the best New Year's Eve I had in recent memory, uh, my partner and I stayed home and we had pizza and brownies and watched Mad Max Fury Road and it was great. That's awesome. Like, <laughs> <laughs> We will do that again. I like it. Wendy, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I live in Los Angeles, so if I can't even describe to you the ridiculousness of New Year's Eve. It's not, there's nothing I want to do that I want to do badly enough to sit in like 18 hours of traffic for on New Year's Eve. And then there's checkpoints everywhere. Everyone is like, the barefoot drunk. I mean, it's just the whole thing. No. I, so I like chill out. I like to make it a chill night. So we are all on introverts. Board with, uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> introverts avoiding the drunk assholes who are <laughs> in the streets on New Year's Eve. I used to like to watch the ball drop in New York, like on TV. Um, but in Chicago, it's that happens at 11 p.m. because we're in the central time zone. Oh. So every year it's like 11 p.m. and I'm like, oh shit, the ball's dropping. And I turn it on, I missed it. Yeah. <laughs> This has happened multiple times. You'd think I would learn. I've lived in Chicago for like nine years now, but every year it surprises me. That is amazing. (laughs) I'm so excited today because we are here with Amy Gentry, who is one of my favorite authors, who also happens to be my agent sister. Hello, Amy. Hi. So you are actually one of the very first people that we thought of to interview when we decided to do this podcast. We were like... So flattered feminist podcast unlikable female characters like call amy <laughs> which is top of the list so we're so glad that you're joining us today um just to start off could you tell our listeners a little bit about you like where you're based your background um, sure. your books maybe how you met our fabulous agent sharon yeah well let me just say first of all it's really exciting to be on this podcast because when i saw the name of it i like freaked out and started <laughs> screaming with delight. Um, it's yeah, unlikable female characters is, is just like you know that's what I do and uh, what I love to read as well as write. So, um, and I am big fans of y'all too. Um, when I saw who was running the podcast, I was like, hooray! I have read these gals' books and. Um, they are unlikable in the best way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I'm delighted. I'm delighted to be here um, and honored to be a guest. Uh, yeah, I'm based in Austin, Texas, and I uh, had my first book out, Good Is Gone, two years ago, I guess, two and a half years ago, and have my second novel um, coming out in January. And um, Yeah, I didn't actually start out thinking I was going to be a crime writer. I kind of um, came at it from a different direction and had like a different career in academia first and then did some freelancing. And when I was writing my first novel, Good Is Gone, I thought it was this very serious family drama, which I think it still is. But um, at some point, the crime just took over. And I realized that at heart, you know, I've always been a diehard fan of like 
I don't know, Dostoevsky was probably my first literary love, you know? Oh, and then, awesome. And, um, yeah, and, like, Patricia Highsmith, uh, um, I became obsessed with in grad school and never really got to write about her in grad school. And so, yeah, I just kind of started realizing, actually, the stories I want to tell tend to be about unpleasant people doing terrible things to each other. This is so the best stories. this crime world is where I belong. <laughs> yeah, I think any book is improved by the addition of more murder and terrible, terrible acts. That's yeah. Listen, it's funny because, here. like, you know, I uh, Henry James is kind of the my other like biggest influence as a reader and at some point again Henry James is typically seen as very like you know high art proto-modernist American literature with a capital L and you know if you just look at those plots like every one of them is just like one murder away from being like the tawdriest <laughs> kind of crime narrative i mean there is crime in most of them there are melodramas there's psychological melodramas um and they're they're usually just the stakes are usually in like someone's inheritance getting stolen or you know someone something like that but it's all there you would just add a murder so that's what I yes. think I'm doing. <laughs> I love it. And how did you meet our agent? Did you like come through the slush pile or did you hook up with her some other way? I had a very um, strange and whirlwind uh, <laughs> agent meeting with Sharon. I stumbled onto the Twitter contest PitMad um, on a, I don't remember when it was like September or August or something. It was in it was in 2015, and I had I was finishing up my novel, but I was not quite ready to query yet. But I was getting close, getting getting close to querying. And I saw I woke up and this contest was going on. I didn't know what it was, but I saw that people were tweeting out synopses of their books in 140 characters. And I was like, well, if I can do that, then I really am. That's a challenge, right? And I mm -hmm. then I really am close to finishing the book if I know what it's about enough to do that. And we'll just see what happens. So I tweeted it out and got some, you know, got some likes back. And Sharon was the kind of the one that, you know, caught my eye. And uh, so I sent her my work and she, um, she kind of like, fell in love with it really, really fast. And I, as I, when every time I tell the story, it's like, it does kind of sound like online dating or something. It's like, <laughs> it's like, I don't know. We just, we just really fell for each other hard, you know, but it was, uh, it was kind of like that. It was, it felt very fortuitous for me. It was the first query I sent, you know, it was That's to amazing. share it. And it happened. I know. I mean, I, and I, it's a very atypical, but I always tell the story um, when people, when I'm talking about, you know, what it's like to query, because I'm like, you know, just anything could work out. So just keep putting random stuff out there, like roll the dice as many times as you can. Um, because you just never know what random thing is going to lead to you finding your dream agent as I did. So yeah, I think that's good advice, because it is there's so much kind of like luck and being in the right place. And in addition to being talented and having, you know, the work to back it up, there's just this element of chance to it it's really interesting yeah, <laughs> everyone has all these crazy stories it's fascinating okay um so your next book last woman standing it will be out in january and i got to read an advanced copy of it after i begged sharon for it for months i was really really <laughs> annoying <laughs> sharon <laughs> lane needed that copy i'm glad you i'm glad she finally got it i'm glad you got it it was the podcast that did it. I was finally like, we're interviewing Amy for the podcast and I need to read her book, Sharon. And then it showed up in the mail like three days later. And I was like, oh, that's all I had to say. 
<laughs> so um, I absolutely love this book. I am just really psyched for more people to read it and also for all the feminist think pieces that are like, inevitably <laughs> going to come oh, out God. of this book. So it's a very ripped from the headlines kind of mm. story about these two women who team up to get revenge on each other's abusers, mm-hmm. uh, which like, did you know when you were writing it that it was going to be so relevant I mean it's like so relevant for this moment in time you know I I, that's always the first question people ask about it and it's I the answer is like yes and no like I had no idea the the me too hashtag was still long from um kind of exploding on on Twitter and um the biggest cases you know associated with that hashtag had not yet popped Mm -hmm. so but you know on the other hand you know, I started it um, after the horrible election that we, that kind of, you know, brought, made yes. everyone kind of <laughs> spiral into um, extreme depression. And, uh, and those those issues had all sort of been there in my first book. Um, you know, those questions about um, how women weather sort of lifetimes of abuse and re-traumatization, how they, you know, continue to work in professions that seem not to want them. Um, these are questions that I are just have always been all around me and I've always been very interested in them and kind of angry about them, honestly, since I was in high school. So, you know, it, it was all, it was, I was ready to write this book and it was in the air in a major way already. I think that's why we're seeing so many supposedly, you know, quote unquote, like me too thrillers this year. It's not because this happened and then everybody like very, very quickly got a book deal and wrote a very fast book about it. You know, it's, it's because this was in the air and that's why, you know, that's why the movement like finally picked up steam. And the truth is, you know, I mean, there have been, it seems like every six months there was some um, feeling that that something big was going to break on on this front. I mean, there were other hashtags before Me Too that had, you know, like not all women, and you know, and there were there was sort of the Cosby case. There was a lot of stuff in the news um, about this anyway. And I think like the last uh, presidential election certainly accelerated and pushed to the forefront a, a lot of those angry feelings. Um, and made it something that people that women were talking about all the time with each other and in public. So um, to me, the, the mystery is like why that moment and why like the fact that the the kind of big tipping point um, there were there were kind of two cases right really close together um, in the spring that. Uh, you know, launched the what we think of as the Me Too movement, and I think it was uh, Louis C.K. and Harvey Weinstein right close together. But Louis C.K. happened first, and that's in the world of comedy. And I would never have, I would never have guessed that that big tipping point would come out of the comedy world. I mean, we'd already had the Bill Cosby stuff, and it seemed, you know, although that was a huge moment, it didn't seem to be spreading the way that when the Louis C.K. accusations finally got into the press and got mainstream coverage, those accusations seemed to tip off something and start, you know. So anyway, that's all to say, like, I don't know why watershed moments happen, (laughs) but it was a little startling is the truth. And I'm sure many women who were already writing those books had the same feeling I did. It was startling to have been writing this book about um, women 
you know, kind of uh, finally trying to bring their long-term abusers in the professional world to some kind of reckoning, um, you yeah. know, and, and to and to have this pop in the middle of it and think, oh my God, like, you know, does this mean the book is going to be, by the time the book comes out, is this kind of all going to be resolved? And of course the answer is like, ha ha, no. <laughs> no. Like I kind of wish, but then, yeah. I mean, absolutely not. Yeah. I had a similar experience with my novel Temper. Mm. I started writing it before all the, you know, Weinstein yes. and Louis C.K. stuff came out. Um, it is based on a little bit on a real case of abuse that happened in a Chicago theater. So mm. like there have been these things and I mean, men have been doing this shit forever, yeah. <laughs> the thing. but I just, by the time I got my book deal, it was like really getting into the height of the me too movement. And people are like, Oh, this is so relevant. And I'm like, I guess this is good for me, but I wish it wasn't so relevant. Cause that means the shit is still happening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, on one hand, it's like, well, it's being talked about and people are actually, yes, you know, people are thinking about it. Um, and I think if you're like me, I'm, I'm sure that when you sat down to write that book, it's like part of, at least part for me, part of the aim of writing it is to kind of show this issue, you know, to illuminate the issue for people who haven't thought about it in exactly that way before. That certainly was something I tried to do in Good Is Gone. Um, mm-hmm. And I heard back from people who, who, in fact, said, you know, like, I had never really thought about re-traumatization in exactly that way before. And I was hoping, you know, I, I was hoping to do something similar and to kind of put it out there for people who either hadn't thought about it in that way or just hadn't heard their own stories told in that exact way. And so when all the stories started coming out around um, the Me Too move- moment and people started talking about it much more publicly, I was like, I mean, this is actually, to me, this is great. You know, <laughs> this is exactly mm-hmm. what I wanted to happen. I'm glad it's happening. I only wish that we could see more real progress um, as a result of it. And I do fear that after the Kavanaugh hearings, I fear that, you know, the only people to ever get fired for this kind of stuff are maybe working in entertainment and even they tend to come back after a little while. But um, when it comes to the real like halls of power, I'm, I'm unfortunately, I, I don't see a lot of evidence that things are changing in that area. But No, people always are like, Oh, think of the poor men, their lives will be ruined. Their lives are never fucking ruined. No, like they nicer. just come right back. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And all of these things, like almost all of these cases, it's something that was basically, uh, like it was a secret, but it was known in the community, like course, in the comedy yeah. community, people knew about Louis C.K. In the theater community in Chicago, people knew about this guy that uh, inspired my book. And yeah. it's just it's coming out publicly, but then it seems to just die off and nothing happens. So I can see why writing about characters taking justice into their own hands is very appealing. Yes. <laughs> like it yeah. definitely yeah, was for me. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Um, I, I grappled a lot when I was kind of working through the premise of this book, I didn't really want it to be a revenge thriller. I mean, I did, I did. I wanted it very desperately, but I didn't know where I would go with that. Like, mm-hmm. I just thought, well, what, what is the end game here? You know, I mean, is it really that I'm sort of putting forth this idea that, you know, women should be taking the law into their own hands? <laughs> um, obviously not you know and I kind of grapple with that throughout the the book um that question but at the same time you know 
it's impossible not to long for some kind of justice. And when we, when we long for it, it's because we're not getting it. Like there's just no sense that there's any avenue that a woman can go through or, or a man who's been abused that, you know, that will result in anything like justice, you know? (laughs) So Mm -hmm. um, it really, almost all the avenues that um, abuse victims have uh, to, to kind of pursue justice tend to result in more victimhood for them. You know, it, it, they're the ones that lose their jobs. They're the ones that get cast out of their communities. They're the ones that get harassed on Twitter. Uh, you know, so, and have like people calling in bomb threats and I mean, calling in like, uh, um, what is it called? Getting swatted and and so forth. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, Wendy's next book is like very relevant to this too. I don't know if you want to talk about that at all, Wendy, but it's also like people taking justice into their, own hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm sitting here quietly, like listening, just like ee. <laughs> <laughs> Jump in. Yeah, I mean, no, I think. I'll, yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, it's just it's funny. It's funny that so many of us, you know, we're we're in the business of writing about crime, and yeah. for women, I've been. I just actually wrote an essay about this that's going to be published, but. It's interesting that for women, this is just a part of our lives. It yeah. isn't. It's. It's almost like we're just writing literary fiction to us yeah. because yeah. fear and crime is just a part of life for us. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so it results in these books. You know, that's yeah. that's where that this is our normal life, and yeah. yeah. And this is like ties into the whole theme of unlikable female characters because so so often, like, I think you know, just disclosing, just talking about this stuff makes a woman unlikable, right? Yes. Just being able just naming the thing and saying like, actually, these things that everyone has been doing for years and years and years are not is not okay. <laughs> uh, you know, just because everyone is doing it, and everyone knows, and it's an open secret doesn't make it okay. And that and being the person to call that out, that, you know, makes you an unlikable person de facto. <laughs> Yeah, that's totally true. Oh, that's so infuriating. I just, (laughs) this makes me so angry. I think the one like silver lining for me in this kind of political moment is all of these books that women are writing and other kinds of art too, you know, like film, music, paintings, whatever, like all of these women are taking their rage and turning it into amazing works of art. And I, it's not as good as getting real justice and like (laughs) getting these motherfuckers out of power, but I love seeing that happening in our culture right now i do too it's so it's so satisfying it's really really satisfying on a on some deep level yes yes yeah so probably what i loved most about last woman standing was that the main characters uh dana and amanda they're never just victims they get to be the aggressors as well because they're taking (laughs) revenge so i always like that when it's kind of a complicated uh like someone's not just a victim not just an aggressor but both um Yeah. So let's talk about them a little bit. I don't know if you want to like explain a little bit about who each of them are, and then we can talk about how likable they are or not. <laughs> yeah. So, so the main character Dana Diaz is this um, comedian. She's trying to be a stand-up comic. She's already had a stint in LA, and she's kind of come back to Austin, Texas after kind of a failed stint in LA. So she's kind of already licking her wounds a little bit when the book opens, um, but her you know, her take, she meets Amanda very early on. They have this kind of 
Amanda's in the audience at one of Dana's stand-up sets that's like not going so well um, in which Dana gets a very typical form of harassment from an audience heckler just like the you know the show us your tits stuff <laughs> <laughs> that every female comic learns to deal with really early on and um, so Amanda you know they they Amanda buys her a drink afterward and they start talking and Amanda starts talking about you know she's been sort of harassed out of the tech world and um, has her own stories to tell about that. And so they're kind of swapping these stories and commiserating and, and um, you know, somehow or other <laughs> over the course of their um, encounter, they have this idea to kind of swap revenge on, and take revenge on each other's um, assailants, as you, as you said, or, you know, mm-hmm. their harassers, their abusers. They have, they each have kind of come to the encounter with, sort of a wide spectrum of abuse. And that rings very true. I mean, to, to me, I wanted it to reflect the experiences of women that I knew and my own experience. And, and, and that's that it's not just, you know, there's big encounters. And then there's also this like series, this sort of lifelong series of like mm-hmm. little awful things that are done to you, um, you know, jokes that are made and that you just have to either weather or, probably just leave and and that that question of whether you whether you weather them whether you um just put up with it you know stuff it down develop a thick skin and move forward or whether you you know emotionally engage enough to call out or resist every single instance of abuse and what that what each path does to a person who chooses it is sort of at the heart of, of the book and the, at the heart of the relationship and contrast between these two characters. Mm-hmm. So Dana is a woman who has, in order to stay in comedy and keep fighting it out, has just, you know, her attitude has been that you need to just put it in a box and put it away somewhere dark and deep and just stop thinking about it. Because if you, if you dwell on it, it immobilizes you and you can't, you know, you can't be, succeeding in this professional world and Amanda comes along with kind of her precise you know Amanda sort of her foil um Mm -hmm. has adopted a very different strategy (laughs) this is what I love about Amanda like this bitch has a spreadsheet of every man who has ever slighted her I'm like right relatable relatable I need a spreadsheet yeah and it makes you think of the you know the the shitty media men list which was another big big news story um you know, in the in the media and publishing world, this was like a secret document that circulated among women um, in the media world. And it didn't circulate for long because eventually someone found out about it and exposed the list and it became this way of like smearing women weirdly. Um, but in fact, it was just a way of women keeping each other informed about who was likely to um, be inappropriate with them, or even even worse, you know, <laughs> women just just kind of outing their abusers, not in public, but just with each other in order to keep each other safe. Um, so that's that's kind of a topic that's also threaded through the book, um, what women can do for each other, what they should do to each other, what they owe to each other. And that's a really, really complicated issue. Um, because, you know, anytime, anytime, um, women disclose that kind of information even with each other they're they're being very vulnerable and they're putting themselves at risk um so anyway yeah back to amanda and (laughs) and dana um the way this plays out in their in their kind of friendship um is i think that uh, amanda kind of acts as the id for 
um, Dana, you know, it's, she's, she's really the return of the repressed, right? Um, she's, she represents all the feelings that Dana has been shoving down and Amanda is able to act and, and willing to act on them sort of coldly, incisively, and then explosively. Um, you know, you're, you're never sure like what lines Amanda will or won't cross in pursuing her revenge. And that's where kind of the excitement and suspense of the book comes in. And you're, and Dana the whole time is not sure how far she will go either. And she's, you know, she's really, I think to me, I, I want, the thing I related to most about Dana was this fear that I think a lot of women have that once you start acknowledging these incidents, the anger that takes over will not, not let you, um, you know, like that's all you'll be is just this, oh, yeah. this flaming ball of rage. And, you know, nobody really wants to be that. <laughs> right. Um, so the, the kind of temptation and seduction of that, but also the real fear that, you know, what is it like once you cross over into that world? Um, it, it also kind of gives you, to me, it was like a good opportunity to write a sort of paranoid thriller too, because um, the idea is that, you know, Dana is, has been not seeing things on purpose and Amanda sees everything. And, and it, there's an, there's a feeling of like the veil being lifted once Dana kind of starts interpreting the world around her in this way, seeing the incidents of abuse everywhere that she's been sort of ignoring or, or fending off or dismissing. Then it's like, you know, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. The world looks like a much scarier place. Once you've acknowledged that, that you're under threat all the time, and um, so that was a thing I wanted to explore in the book as well. And since it's sort of the conceit of doing each other's, you know, revenge is very much in homage to Strangers on a Train by the great Patricia Highsmith. And, um, you know, that's a very, a very paranoid book um, in which uh, the, the kind of doppelganger character, Bruno, who introduces the idea of swapping murders, um, does kind of act as like the repressed id, you know, run set loose <laughs> uh, to wreak havoc in the main character's world. So that, yeah, that's a long way around of talking about um, where the idea came from. But um, but yeah, all those themes are in the book. <laughs> yeah, and Dana is like she's arguably the more likable of the two of them, mm -hmm. partially because she laughs things off and kind of is. I don't know. She's like cool with all the comedy bros and just mm -hmm. kind of more easygoing and more good natured and everything. It's like that's considered more likable and acceptable behavior for a woman, which mm -hmm. is kind of fucked up in its own way. Mm -hmm. But then um, we don't have to go too much into this because it might be a little spoilery. But Dana has this alter ego that she assumes in her <laughs> comedy act. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Because her alter ego is like my new favorite unlikable female character. <laughs> She's amazing. Yeah, it's funny. Like, um, yeah. She can that character kind of steals the show <laughs> whenever she appears. Yeah. Um, so this theme of like doppelgangers and doubles kind of also runs throughout the book. And I wanted it to I wanted it to have that that crisscross, like mirrored sort of structure. And so of course Dana and Amanda are like the primary pairing, but I also throughout the book I kept I sort of ended up spinning off a lot of like a lot of other doubles kind of just popped up um on their own almost and betty was one of those characters so betty results from uh 
Dana doing stand-up in a wig, basically. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> she just puts on this wig, and then she ends up doing stand-up. And she's been complaining the whole first part of the book about how her act is, her set is really dull, and she she's needs some new material. And Betty becomes, when she puts on this Betty wig, she just almost starts channeling this character. And this character, you know, is is just really pure it, like primal, abject, disgusting, violent. Um, you know, Betty is, is a version of what uh, in comedy is often called like a dirtbag character. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, um, and that's a persona I've seen stand-ups adopt on stage and and then, you know, take off, like, and sometimes it is a wig or some other, like, or a mustache or something that they can put on, um, and then just slip into this other that allows them, gives them permission to say just the worst, most horrible things. And that's, um, that's what Betty does. <laughs> and Dana becomes addicted to it almost immediately, uh, because Betty is, you know, even more than Amanda, Betty is expressing something just very, very ugly within her that she's dying to let out. Um, and, you know, and of course, because this is a book, Betty also happens to be to revivify her career. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I think that's also not, you know, unlikely. I mean, I think there there is something like I think we've all as writers um, and creatives experienced this um, the feeling of like that maybe there's something we're let we're holding back. That's, you know, that we're afraid of. And that's what keeps us from being able to really sink into something and give our whole selves to it. And when we, when we just open the floodgates, you know, we have one too many glass of wine and, and start <laughs> writing the, the scene, the unwritable scene. Um, that's when the book often takes off. So, you know, to me, that's, that's Dana's, <laughs> Betty is kind of the unwritable, the unwritable, unthinkable uh, scene for, for Dana. And it, it sort of, she immediately takes over because she's, and she's just a lot more fun. <laughs> she's very fun. But it's at first kind of like Dana sees her as something outside herself. She's like, oh, like, this isn't me. How did I do that? But then she kind of has to realize that this is something that's inside her that she's letting out, giving herself permission. Like you said, it's mm -hmm. not just this separate entity. It's all part of her, which is what's so interesting. Well, you're a theater person, you know, so you know yeah. that like putting on a costume is an incredibly powerful act that can allow you to really feel like you are becoming an entirely different person. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, it's like a mask. If you've ever done any workshops that involve masks, uh, putting on a mask that covers your face is just this incredibly, um, just psychologically freeing act that, um, you know, can unleash all different, all different kinds of personalities. And an interesting um, side note on that Betty character um, the way that came to me, uh, <laughs> the wig idea came to me because I knew someone, I used to wait tables with someone who um, had different wigs and she um, didn't wear them every day, but uh, one, she was like very into vintage stuff. So they were all kind of, you know, sort of vintagey wigs, right? And one day she cut her hair. She came to work with a haircut that she really hated. It was like too short. She hated it. And so she was like, I'm going to wear this. I'm going to wear this wig for a while until my hair grows out. And she, her personality changed. She swore. Huh. Yes. She had a different name. She insisted that we all call her by a different name when she had the wig because she didn't want to be associated with the person that she was when she wore it. She became this like bitchy waitress. <laughs> she was, <laughs> she was a really great waitress. And, uh, and really, really nice and kind. Always a bit quirky, as you could 
as you're probably being able to sure, tell. Sure, sure. But, um, but yeah, when she, she really was like, by the end of the, in the, you know, in the beginning, she kind of enjoyed playing with that character a little bit. And then by the end, she was like, I have to get this wig off. It's just, it's, this wig is like bad news. You know, it's really, I don't even want to say the name of the character she was playing, but um, I, she's burned into my brain, that alternate, that alter ego that she um, stumbled into. So um, yeah, that, that character is really kind of devoted to her. And, um, and the character that Dana borrows the wig from is more or less based on that, on that woman that I knew who I was close friends with at the time. That's so interesting. Yeah. Oh my god. So were, like, were her tips better when she was being bitchy or when she's being her nice, normal self? God, that is such a good question. I, I, she probably told me at the time and I, I, I have forgotten long ago, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, she, I often wonder what happened to her and I've tried to find her, but I can't remember her last name. So one of those like work acquaintances from 15 years ago, they think, I wonder what happened to her. I'll maybe put her in a book, book and I'll feel that I know her again. <laughs> yeah. Maybe she'll read it and then she'll reach out. And oh, like, I so hey. hope so. I really <laughs> hope so. <laughs> okay. So now I want to ask you about, um, you mentioned that there was a guy in your, you're taking a TV writing class, I think, and you said oh, it's yeah. called <laughs> Last Woman Standing Man-Hating, which is a ringing endorsement as far as we're concerned. I know, I kind of want to take yeah. the Karen Slaughter blurb off the front and then put his blurb on there instead, you know? This, yeah, I mean, like, that would make me pick it up immediately. <laughs> <laughs> One word blurb, man-hating. <laughs> but yeah, tell us about like this class and this guy, I mean, whatever you can say without getting in trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I am taking a TV writing class because I've been interested in learning to write pilots and, um, I, you know, Last Woman Standing is kind of my current um, uh, project. And uh, yeah, so I, I handed out the, the beat sheet and we were workshopping it in class. And this this guy just had, you know, he's, a, he's like a kind of an older, an older guy, um, older than me anyway, whatever I'm already 40. So, <laughs> uh, but, but he was, he was kind of, uh, he kind of sat back with his arms folded in front of his chest and seemed pretty disgruntled and said, you know, <laughs> listen, I just have to say that I, I really, this really struck me as man hating script. And I couldn't see that you had given one positive characteristic to any man in, in this script. And, um, and it really, you know, it, it really offended me. And I thought, I thought it was just not very complex and, um, and it was so, it was so funny because, I mean, my initial thought was, I mean, he's, he's right. I mean, it is pretty man-hating. And in so far as the men who appear in this pilot are abusive assholes, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> um, it's not all that easy on the women either in my opinion but um but certainly in the pilot when these characters are getting set up they're discussing the men who have abused them so i you know to me it's rather it's mystifying what it speaks to is that i don't think men are used to seeing themselves portrayed in the same way that women have always been portrayed which is mm -hmm. as peripheral characters who are just you know off screen having someone talk shit about them or when they're on screen they're causing trouble for some you know, the main character. Um, there are all kinds of pilots. <laughs> there are lots and lots of pilots out there, including the fantastic Breaking Bad pilot, which um, we studied in that class. It's an, it's an incredible pilot, but, um, you know, the way the women appear, you know, the way Skylar is treated in that, in that pilot 
you can see why she became a target of such harassment. That actress got harassed over the course of the show because people felt that she was such a drag and that she was like nagging and holding Walter, the hero, the anti-hero of the, <laughs> of the show back. Um, and, and, you know, not to call out this guy, we're all in this class, we're all learning together to be to be stronger writers. So I would never want to call out someone who's actively trying to get better. Um, but you know, this guy's screen, uh, this guy's pilot, I was like, yeah, the women in your pilot are not too great either, you know? Like, I don't really see many positive traits popping up in the women in your pilot, you know? Um, that's because it's about it's about men, and, and this, uh, you know, this book is about women. It's really not about the abusers. It doesn't go deeply into their psychology, although it attempts to paint an accurate portrait from the outside of, you know, what their behavior is like. Um... Yeah, so to me, it's the story when a when a story is about women who've been abused, the men are going to appear pretty hateable. One might even call them unlikable if one were being nasty. Ooh, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and to call them into account and to call you know to call the script man hating at a time at a, at a point where. Literally, this is like the first act, so it's nothing really even has much has been done to the men. It's just observation of how, um, you know, how the women in the comedy world are treated. And it's um, it's just the women mostly just talking to each other and telling their stories to kind of to overhear that conversation and call it man hating is, you know, to me, it's just it's mostly just a lack of having been exposed to women's points of view. Um, so hopefully, hopefully he will be won over by the end of the um, class, but <laughs> I have high really hopes. Interesting that um, it's like to think about calling basically any script ever like woman hating, which you, you pretty much could. Like, yeah, yeah, but like imagine like doing that. No one does that. Like, those scripts are just regular scripts, but yeah. a script with uh, women in the focus and men without a lot of positive characteristics are quote man hating like that's just fascinating yeah. to think about going around and pegging like basically every movie that's in theaters right now yeah. woman hating or like for the past hundred years I mean right. like my, my husband and I you know watch lots and lots and lots of movies and if you are a film buff it is kind of something you have to just continually reckon with if you're a woman like what whether you're there's a great essay written about this a couple of years ago I wish I could remember the name of the woman who wrote it, I think it was for Lit Hub, but it was, it was just, it was about kind of primarily about Woody Allen movies. And, mm. you know, it was just about like watching these movies as a woman, loving them, and also just seeing over and over again that, you know, the way women characters are, are marginalized, objectified, instrumentalized, you know, used for the to show to prove a point or to help a man develop his character and and the, and also you know let it be said that the the main characters in those movies the male protagonists are quite often purposefully unlikable anti-heroes um like okay. walter white or like any woody allen <laughs> uh, character um you know these are loathsome repellent unrelatable uh, unlikable men who we nevertheless sympathize with because the writing is well done. And and that's what a good story does to me. I, I wish we could find a word that wasn't likable, relatable. You know, I wish we could find a word to describe what it is we need from our protagonists to keep engaged in a book. Because I think when it's 
when it's a female protagonist, we keep coming up, we keep going back to these words, these unlikable, unrelatable words. But, you know, there is something there, there is something we need from a protagonist, but it can't possibly be likability or relatability because like, I don't like or relate to Walter White from Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. but that was a great show. <laughs> you know? Like, uh, So yeah, I, I don't know. What do you ladies think? Do y'all have like a, do y'all have any ex- I, uh, alternate terms? You I feel propose? like the thing is that male characters, and one might even argue white male characters, have mm-hmm. the luxury of being treated as individuals. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the rest of us, it's like, if a female character is this way, what does it say about women? Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. You know sure. what I mean? Or, you know, and I, I'm i not a person of color, so I can't speak to that, but I've heard people of color say they feel the same way that, you know, there's not the, the luxury of being treated as an individual. There's really only one group in stories that is treated as individuals, you know? Yeah. So you can have a character like a Dawn Draper and it doesn't say anything about men that Don Draper is that way. It's well, Don Draper. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> sorry, sorry. From the yeah. story, yeah, from their perspective. And so for the rest of us, it's like every time we write this female character, yeah. men kind of come at it like, well, are you saying that's how women are? And then if we write a male character that's like, are you saying that's how men are? women writers aren't given that luxury to write individual characters and just have it only speak to that one character, in my opinion. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. And I don't think it's just men either. I mean, I, I, I kind of singled out this poor guy in my screenwriting class, but I have had, on Good Is Gone, I had plenty of women readers. There, mostly it was women reading that book. Um, I had a like really, really awesome audience of smart women reading that book. But uh, some of my critiques, some of the meanest critiques about the characters being unlikable were from women. Um, So I think in terms of enforcing it, enforcing this kind of, this kind of, um, I guess, bias in favor of white men as the only individuals and everyone else being representative of all womankind or whatever. I think women are also the enforcers of that as well as the victims of it. I think you're so right. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about that on here a lot. We try to really own up to the places where we've bought in and we really try to face that. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. I'm sure I find myself doing it, you know, all the time. I, it's as much as my knee jerk reaction is kind of always to identify that with the female perspective. Um, you know, there've been times, uh, even as a book reviewer, when I wondered, you know, why am I reacting this way to this character? Would I, react the same way if this character were a man you know it's it's uh it's very interesting i think to me i think when we see things uh, i think that a lot of times when we are most punishing to a female character as women is when we see something in that character that we have fought very hard to keep out of our self-conception oh yes, wow yeah yes. you know i think it's very defensive so you know, for my first book, Good Is Gone, there was a, a mother character who, um, you know, many found to be unmotherly <laughs> in many ways. And I think that was extremely threatening to people, um, and to the to the audience for the book particularly, many of whom were mothers. I think it's really threatening to have to identify with somebody and to say, oh, yes, this is a normal feeling that not that motherhood comes with ambivalence. And that it's not just about, you know, this kind of blissful ideal we have put on women. Um, Yeah, so to me, I, you know, that's just my armchair psychologizing. But I was like, I wonder how many people were really felt really threatened by that. And when I have been 
turned off by a, a female protagonist who's acting in some way, some ugly way. I, I often think, what is it in myself that I'm hating here? You know? It's shame, you know, it's shame that has been given to us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's also like we are told women are supposed to be a certain way and then we see a woman who is not acting in that way and it's kind of like, oh, I didn't I didn't know that I was allowed to do that or I didn't know that it was even an option to not be this way and people can resent that. And so that's where like – you know, a character might come across as unlikable because, like, I'm mad that I'm not acting that way or I'm not giving myself permission to act that way. That's really yes. well put. That's really interesting. Yeah. Awesome. This is, I could, we could just talk about this forever. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> but, uh, Thank goodness I'll, there's I'll... a podcast devoted to this topic. I know. Right? I know. <laughs> um, so, uh, another question we had for you, this is probably a good segue into this actually, is do you have a favorite unlikable female character? <laughs> Could be from books, movies, TV, whatever, just an unlikable female character you love. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, there's a couple in books that I know of that are coming out by Wendy Hurd. Have you heard of her? <laughs> and uh, and Lane Fargo. Yay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They've got a couple of books coming out. Yeah, Temper and Hunting Annabelle have some pretty awesomely um, hateable in the best way female characters. So uh, those have been recent examples. But yeah, I also, um, I feel like it's going to be, you know, seen as copying, but like, you know, Amy from Gone Girl is kind of a gold standard. Um, what's, uh, what else have I got? I, I mean, honestly, like all the characters, all the characters in like the books that I love, like, um, the Henry James novels, like, you know, Wings of the Dove has, like, Kate Croy is, like, an amazingly wonderful, evil female character who I just identify passionately with, um, much more so than the good girl, Millie Thiel, in that same novel. And okay. I was just t discussing Portrait of a Lady, and another favorite James book, with someone the other day and saying, like, my favorite character in that book is Madame Merle, who's like the really evil. <laughs> she is just like the worst. Um, you know, there's this, the, the hero of that novel is this young ingenue as she often, an innocent girl as she so often is in a, in a Henry James novel. But there's always in Henry James novels, these, these kind of lurking fe female characters on the corners, you know, of the, of the story who kind of, come in and turn out to play a, a hugely important role and, um, you know, scheming, manipulative. And it's, uh, it's obvious that James loves them. You know, he hmm. loves them. He understands them much better than his sort of young, innocent, naive, ingenue characters. That's so. so interesting. I haven't read a Henry James book since college, I don't think. But it's like he loves those characters, but he had to make them the villains. Well, <laughs> I mean, the time not, writing I, in, you or? know, that's really debatable. I mean, mm. I think um, certainly in um, Portrait of a Lady, to name one that more people have read, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, Madame Merle is definitely the villain, but there's a bigger villain who manipulates Madame Merle and for whom she's sort of you know, she's she, at the end of the book, you sort of discover that she's been at the mercy of the same, um, you know, scheming man that 
the main character Isabel has been under. So it's like, you know, this is what I, but this is what I love. This is what I try to recreate in my books. Um, you know, hopefully I'll get better and better at it. But I, I really love to set up a, a dynamic between just a tight group of people, three or four, which again reminds me, Lane, of your book with its like central triad, but you know, that are just all kind of really tightly embroiled with each other you know, in dynamics, in like manipulative and, and psychological fake outs and in these like not simple dynamics so that there are, you know, there is victimization going on and there are abuses and, you know, but, but, but nobody's hands are really clean. And I mm -hmm. think that, you know, to me, that's, first of all, it's just more interesting to have um, complicated villains and complicated heroes and often, be unable to tell one from the other um and uh, but but it's also just true i mean what can i say like one of the most injurious and like pervasive myths of rape culture is that um, in order for a crime to have happened the victim has to have been sort of a pure innocent <laughs> right with, yep, the with, perfect victim yeah they have to be the perfect victim who's never done anything wrong hasn't doesn't lie and sort of behaves in a model fashion you know they have to be model victims and and, and villains have to be very very bad all the time you know <laughs> they they cannot have done anything positive <laughs> and this kind of polarization is really is really harmful and it pre prevents justice from taking place so often it's the most common method of um i guess uh you know keeping a, a rape conviction from happening it's um if some if you take an abuser to court the victim is going to be smeared and there are law firms that specialize in this i mean they're consulting I, I have a friend who reports on these issues and he is like familiar with like the law firms that specialize in digging up dirt on people who make these accusations against powerful men Ugh. yeah it's just makes you want to take a shower just thinking about it but the reason they're able to do that is because it works it's because people really want to believe in you know, in the good victim and the bad villain. And the truth is the crime still took place, <laughs> you know, yeah. like the crime is still a crime and there is a victim within the context of the crime, but you know, they're still whole people, you know, and you have to be able to hold both of those things in your head at the same time, if you want justice to be served. So I think a part of the patriarchy is telling us that you're not a victim unless you fit this criteria because what that does is it relieves them of culpability mm -hmm. like the only way you can have a criminal is if you have a victim yeah. so it's like by narrowing down that what a victim is narrative yeah. yeah you create a much wider playing field for people to do criminal acts without being considered criminals yeah that's a perfect way to put it yeah it is I love hearing a woman talk about the classics, man. I, I, I'm so excited to hear you do that. I feel like the classics belong to a certain demographic of man who's allowed to say I'm influenced by Henry James. Like, I know who that guy is. You know, I've, I've accidentally sat and listened to panels with those guys up there. And I've just been like, oh, my God, no. I feel like an accident. Oh, Oops, how did I get in this room? 
I would love to, I'd love to see a panel of women being saying things like I'm influenced by Kerouac, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> right. Cause we all were, that's who we read, you know, like there weren't, there weren't a lot of female authors being pushed on me all through, um, you know, high school for right. sure. Right. Even college, but you know, you find them, but, um, but you also find the men, you know, you also find the men who invite identification. You find backdoors to, to, to identifying with, male characters and um and you find ways to identify with female characters who are marginalized within stories but um but you know i, I think women be, develop these extremely creative ways of and i'm sure uh, people of color as well must have to find these extraordinarily creative ways of identifying within stories and i think that's part of why we, you know, just to make a sweeping generalization, I think women do have a great facility for, um, you know, telling telling stories from multiple viewpoints, empathizing with characters and creating really, really um, believable characters across the spectrum. I think we were we've just been forced our whole lives to find those creative ways of identifying with people unlike us. And white men have not i mean some many of them have chosen to but they did not have to <laughs> mm-hmm. so yeah that's why they get so mad when shit is not about them oh my like god they're <laughs> like how can i possibly relate to this character Ugh. No. Yeah. All right. So I could really, we could just talk all day, but we should probably start wrapping it up. Um, So my last question for you is what are you working on right now? uh, And does it feature any quote unquote unlikable female characters? (laughs) Yes. As a matter of fact, it does. I'm shocked by that. Tell us about it. (laughs) Yeah. um, My current work in progress, which I'm finishing up right now and which is um, set to to be out in a couple of years, I think January, 2021. So not for a little while, but yeah, I'm really excited about it. And I don't want to say too much about the plot, but the main character is again, kind of an, um, a Highsmith homage. I don't know that anyone will see that and that's fine with me, but um, I, I set out wanting this character to be kind of a female Tom Ripley um, you know, which is to say she, um, yeah, she is going to be basically a villain or an anti-hero. Um, I think, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it depends. The audience will have to, the readers will have to decide, you know, whether she's, whether her actions are justified. But, um, I wanted the first book. I mean, I'd love to write multiple books about her. I don't know if I will, but I wanted this book uh, which is technically a standalone to show kind of the making of the making and education of a villain. And naturally I felt the best place for this to take place was humanities grad school. <laughs> a PhD if that won't program. turn you into a villain. I don't know what will. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, you know, if you, if you look at my bio, you might find some clues into why I feel that way. But um, it just seemed having been in a PhD program, um, and in a particularly competitive PhD program, I just felt like what better place? I mean, the behavior that happens in that kind of like hothouse environment and that really rarefied small pond, you know, people's best selves do not usually emerge in that, no. <laughs> in that environment. No, no, no. <laughs> so what a great place to have somebody, um, learn her villainous ways. So that's what you can look forward to me to from me in a couple of years. Uh, 
if I if I ever finish it. So that sounds amazing. And I used to want to go into academia. I have a master's degree, and then I got the fuck out. But mm-hmm. like, I know that world a little bit, and it is. It's just so full of stress and drama and mm-hmm. people just behaving terribly. So that sounds great. All right. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. This has been amazing. Uh, could you tell us where people can find you on the internet? And also if you have any events coming up, you want to plug anything like that? Sure. Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at unlanded gentry. And I love that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a very old joke and probably worn itself out but now I'm used to it so it's I'm stuck with it and then that's also my Instagram handle as well and then I have a website uh, www.amygentryauthor.com so you can also contact me through that website if you would like to and find out what I've got coming up all right well thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for having me it was a blast go Texas yeah (laughs) (laughs) That's it for this episode of Unlikable Female Characters. Don't forget to subscribe, and you can also follow us on Twitter at UnlikableFCPod for updates, book recommendations, and angry feminist rants. Our website is unlikablefemalecharacters.com, and we're also on Instagram at unlikablefemalecharacters. Thanks for listening. <laughs>